This is Sean Azaro, and you are listening to the Reaching for Real Life podcast and radio program. As heard on several stations across the country, Pastor Sean, I'd like to remind you. Well, that's right, Baron. <laughs> <laughs> that would be the country of Texas. <laughs> the country, exactly. <laughs> uh, we are on AM 630, The Word, uh, AM 930, The Answer, Bernie Radio. Oh, man. Hundreds of uh, podcast channels, thousands of listeners. <laughs> thousands. But, well, you well, know, you know. <laughs> if you count my family. <laughs> hey, Baron Wiley here with Pastor Sean Azaro. Uh, Easter's coming, Pastor Sean. I saw the amphitheater's getting all teed up for something. Is that for Easter? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. We, uh, we're going to do Easter in the amphitheater. We're inviting the entire community. Uh, mm. The beauty is the amphitheater has so much space. You know, it can, it's a venue that can handle 20,000 people. You know, we'll probably have less than that. <laughs> but, <laughs> back to the thousands. Back, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, not the tens of thousands. <laughs> it's not a lack of faith. It's just, you know. Uh, but yeah, there's plenty of room for people to distance if they're concerned about. We're not know. concerned anymore, Sean. Didn't you hear? Yeah. Uh, thank oh. you. God bless Texas oh. and Governor All Abbott. Right. We are lifting some of the restrictions, and that's always good news. So, All however, right. we can kind of get back to doing the things God called us to do. That's a great thing. I have a feeling you might uh, have a message on the gospel maybe this Easter. Would you? Oh, that's a great idea. I'm going to go ahead and make a note of that. Yes, yes, we will be presenting the gospel. And you know what we should do on this radio show? We should probably talk about Easter. Maybe the, you know, defending the faith was the resurrection real and and all that kind of stuff. If only we knew somebody. (laughs) If only I knew a guy. Who could defend the faith. Well, thank you, Baron. Uh, we are, that's a great setup. We are, have a very special treat for you today. So if you're expecting a normal Reach for Real Life podcast, you know, just being Baron, blah, 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 wrong. We are joined today by Dr. Sean McDowell, who's Associate Professor of Apologetics at Talbot School of Theology, Biola University. Uh, he's the co-host of the Think Biblically podcast, which is where I first kind of was exposed to his thought, his writings. He's a prolific author, a number of books, including Josh, uh, uh, I'm sorry, Sean, including a couple of co-writes that you did with an up-and-comer, a young guy named Josh McDowell. You kind of helped him out, carried him on a couple. You know what? I was pretty much just pulling him up, trying to give him some recognition and impact. And, you know, I'm happy to help however I can. God bless you. Got to help the old man out. Well, Sean, thank you for being with us. It is an honor to have you. Oh, this is a treat. Thank you. I am currently reading uh, one of your books called So the Next Generation Will Know, which is a great, great read. You co-wrote that with uh, Jay Warner Wallace. And uh, that's just an important book for parents, for school teachers, for youth leaders, anybody who wants to help the current generation. And I know a lot of people are worried, and that's why I was so looking forward, so forward to talking to you. A lot of people are concerned about... How are we passing on this gospel of ours to the youngest generation, the next generation? And this book, uh, so the next generation will know, is a fantastic resource. Thanks for writing that. Oh, thanks for saying that. We've been really pleased at at the feedback from teachers, parents, uh, mentors, coaches, youth pastors have just said, number one, it's rooted in a ton of research on Gen Z. So we're not just guessing. Right. It's research. I've never read every study I could find, but I also have three Gen Zers in my home, and it's also really practical. Right. It's kind of a how-to book that's like, okay, here's some things I can do with this. So I'm glad glad to hear it's helpful. Oh, unbelievably so. Hey, before we get into that, you have currently written a book, kind of a continuation of the True Love Waits campaign uh, for, for students. Tell us a little bit about the book Chasing Love. Yeah. So the book Chasing Love just came out in December. And honestly, I got an email yesterday that said it was in one of the top 
uh, selling new Christian releases, which for a student book on sex, I'm not going to lie. I felt pretty good about that. I was like, wow, it's, it's hitting a nerve, so to speak. And the idea is basically there's three parts of the book. The first part is to strip away these faulty secular ideas that our kids in the best Christian homes, best Christian schools, best churches have adopted without us really realizing. I think secular views about love, views about freedom, views about identity. So first third is like, let's strip away these faulty ideas. The middle is like, okay, what is God's design for sex, singleness, and marriage? Right. And in the last third of the book, it's like, let's talk about these thorny, hot cultural topics like pornography, sex abuse, transgenderism, same-sex marriage, and they should make sense once we've already laid down in the book what God's design for these things are. Man, that is so important. And, you know, I'm, I'm a pastor. We're, we're called the Church for Real Life, so I'm a pastor at a church, and we've got all ages. we got lots of young families and older families. we got um, leadership levels. we got grandparents, parents, and now young adults all in leadership at different levels of our church, which is great. But my assumption, I think, is sometimes that I know what's happening with that youngest generation. And mm-hmm. my son, who is now planning a church not far from us, we're helping launch a church, uh, he and I talked a lot growing up. And I remember the time he said to me, Dad, you didn't have a phone. And we had given right. him a phone when he became, you know, probably 15, you know, 14, 15, and you know, be able to reach him when he's at youth stuff or whatever, wherever he is. And he just, you know, he came and talked to me about the things that – kids his age are thinking about dealing with and having to process that man when when obviously when we were kids we didn't have to but I think it's even changed now for because he's now got he's got two kids and it's just changing so quickly I'd love for us to talk a little bit about some of those challenges of passing this faith of ours on our sexual ethics all of it because I think sometimes we're shocked at what our kids are having to deal with. And I just think the conversations are different today than they were 10, 15 years ago. How do you see that difference? I mean, you're right on the front lines of this. What do you see that's changed in just the last 10, 15 years in how we talk about our faith, apologetics, or how we pass this on? Well, there's been a few changes. One of the huge change, of course, is the smartphone. And this Gen Z is now the first generation raised swiping smartphones before they could read or in many cases even talk. Right. So that affects their relationships. It's no coincidence we've seen an explosion of depression and anxiety and loneliness exacerbated by the quarantine. Right. That has changed conversations about sexuality. Mm. The other thing smartphones have done is they've made these conversations even younger. Right. So the kinds of exposure kids have at six, seven, eight years old because of pornography is very off the mm. kind of things people are exposed to until years later. So this is a conversation that's gone earlier. I'm driving the car the other day and my eight-year-old son's asking me about abortion. Well, that was mm. an opportunity. That's how I view it, right. an age-appropriate way to discuss them. So technology just brought in a lot of uh, – depression and loneliness emotionally. It's brought the issues younger. I think it's made things more crass. It's even shaped the humor of this generation, the things they laugh at based on what they see. But a fourth huge change today is now it used to be broadly speaking that many in our culture didn't follow a biblical sexual ethic, but they'd say that's nice if you did. That's good for you. Now, biblical sexual ethic, if you believe marriage is between one man and one woman and sex is supposed to be in that context, 
then you're bigoted and hateful and you are responsible for the many kids who suffer who don't see the world that way. Right. So now a biblical sexual ethic is bad and it's bigoted. And it's yeah. also framed in what's called critical theory right. that sees the world to the oppressed and the oppressor. And it's akin to like in the minds of many, the latest civil rights movement is to fight for liberation, so, so to speak, for these sexual minorities. Right. So that's at least three or four significant ways the conversation has changed. Yeah, well, and and that's one where I think we're sometimes shocked. I, I want to back up a little bit and, and talk about just the smartphone. One of the things that is interesting is we've talked about the changing nature of education and colleges and how before they had kind of a, a monopoly on information. Well, now we all have more information in our pocket than whatever library at whatever university you want to think of. How is the dynamic that and not just regarding sex, but just regarding this idea of our worldview and our faith. And how has that changed? Just that our kids, we're no longer the sole authoritative voice, or our teachers are no longer the sole authoritative voice. They've got a lot of authoritative voices, and they can access them whenever they want. Well, I do say to parents all the time when I talk to them, and this is a theme of the book you mentioned, so the next generation will know that kids are not going first to their pastor, they're not going to their teacher. They're not going to the Bible. They're not going to the parents. Right. The first place kids look is Google or YouTube, which is owned by Google, by the way. Right. That's where they go with their questions. So that dynamic has shifted because of the access of information is so different. But I think you're right what you're hinting at. One of the most important commodities I've come to believe is trust. Mm. When there's endless voices speaking into this generation, they're asking themselves the questions. Who can I trust? Who will I listen to? And that's why relationships are so important, building relationships with this generation so they'll listen to us. But we also have to get our facts right. We speak things that aren't true. You know this from the pulpit. I remember the first time I was speaking, it's been a decade now to this atheist group, and they've got their smartphones out checking what I say while I say it. If you get it wrong, you lose trust. So you got to get your facts right. But I think relationships are such a powerful way to build trust so we can speak into kids' lives. Well, you make that real clear, and that's one of the things that really grabbed me and so the next generation will know, that – that you didn't just start with apologetics for the, you know, Gen Z, you, you talked about relationship. Um, how, how does a parent who says, I want to be, you know, a Christ centered, I love my children. I want to be the greatest influence in helping to form their thought, their character, their development, especially in those developmental years. Talk about some ways parents can really make sure that relationship piece is growing because you really stressed that and I thought it was very powerful. Well, let me give you a couple of practical ways that I've done this with my kids. If the relationship is not in place, these things aren't going to work. Two summers ago, my daughter came to me and she wanted these Birkenstock shoes that are like 50 bucks or no, they're over a hundred dollars. Oh yeah. And I was trying to think of what's a way I could make this valuable to her where she could learn something. So I said, okay, if you would be willing to watch 50 of these short PragerU videos, <laughs> which are all about like, I don't agree with yeah. all of them, but a lot of them, they're about politics, they're about right. relationships, they're about culture. And just write one paragraph summary. So each one might take you 10 minutes. So if you're willing to do that, it might take you 10 hours. That's making $10 an hour. I'll buy you the shoes. But you have to share them with me, my wife, or your grandparents. 
she actually did it. Nice. She watched 50 wrote summaries and we had, she's like, dad, did you know this about Planned Parenthood? I'm like, tell me about it. And it was just a cool way to her to realize shoes don't fall from heaven. Like yeah. you got to work for something, yeah. Yeah. but it was building her worldview and it was to build relationships. So that's one way. Another way, when my book Chasing Love came out, I told my daughter, I said, look, if it was actually the same motivation, I was like, if you'll read this, I'll buy your pair of shoes. And the McDowell family, we really like shoes. <laughs> she goes, hey, there's an outlet down the street. I can get two for one. I was like, fine. All you got to do is read the book. And then you and I go and we'll talk about it for an hour, hour and a half. So she reads my book on sex, love, and marriage. We go for an hour and a half, sit down, and we just – I asked her, what did you find most interesting? What did you learn? Did you disagree with anything? What was your favorite story? What like – and we just talked for 90 yeah. minutes. So it was relationally teaching her truth. I'll give you one more example with, with my son. I'm trying to make this practical for people. My son came to me. He's almost 17, so two and a half years ago, he was 14. That movie Bohemian Rhapsody came out mm. about the rock band Queen. Yeah. And he was just intrigued. He wanted to see it. And I knew there were some messages in it, PG-13 for sexuality, no nudity, but I'm like, he's old enough. I'll take him. His mom approved it. And I said, okay, buddy, I'll take you to this movie and a friend whose mom approves. If when we're done, we just come back and sit down at the dinner table and I just want to talk to you about it. I want to know what you think. He goes, sure. Go to the movie. We come back. We sit down. I'm like, what'd you like? What'd you learn? What can we embrace in this film? Are there any moments you felt you were being preached at? As Christians, how do we think about this film? Nice. And we just talked about it. So it was relationship like you're talking about, but incorporating worldviews yeah. and yeah. truth into it. Yeah. Well, you you guys made the point real clear in the book that that relational piece, that so much that truth is best received and kind of assimilated yes. in a relational context. And, you know, you stop and think about, wait, that's what Paul wrote, speak the truth in love. We sometimes think, right. no, no, that just means be loving as you speak the truth. I think it means, no, no, truth and relationship, really, it's like that's where it sinks in and goes beyond a head thing to the heart thing. I think that, that was very, very powerful, and parents need to hear that. You know, and teachers need to know that. You know, mm -hmm. you you still, is it, I mean, I, I, at least according, at, as of that writing, you still were teaching one high school class kind of to keep your, keep stay in the game. Is that still happening? I taught it this morning, and then I did two chapels at that Christian school. So I'm full-time at Biola, but because my kids are there and my wife teaches there, I feel like I spend about as much time at this Christian school because sure. I want to be around my, my kids, their friends, the teachers, their games. Right. I want to be present in their lives. Man, that's powerful. And that is, uh, you know, that's one thing my wife and I always, we were very, very intentional about. We just said, you know, uh, there's lots of people who can lead this church, lead our ministry and stuff. There's only two people who can be parents to our kids. And so that's got to be our first call, you know. Uh, so the one of the things that I think is scaring parents, and I think a lot of this came out, the whole critical theory thing is something that I believe caught a lot of parents off guard with the you know, Ahmad Marbury and uh, George Floyd, the killing of George Floyd. Uh, I think both of those instances brought up this big, this rage and this conversation that with talking points that a lot of parents had never heard before. And, you know, that idea of, of the oppressor, the oppressed, and it kind of sits contrary to some of the things that I think we would hold that no, no, sin is in the heart of man and that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And, you know, some of those things, how has that affected the conversation in regards to just apologetics, worldview, the things you deal with? Well, 
critical theory and critical race theory has been around for a long time, but it was really the George Floyd incident that just, I think during COVID, uh, during kind of the COVID quarantine was what you might call the perfect storm that just brought all these brewing things together and that just released it. So people felt like it came out of nowhere, but these ideas had been brewing for a long time and were not new. Now, critical race theory I wrote, if it's interesting for folks, I forget the exact title. If you search like three-step critical race theory, Sean McDowell, it'll pop up. Mm -hmm. And it was an approach to critical race theory because I find two mistakes that people make. Either people uncritically just adopt critical race theory and without thinking twice, comparing it to scripture and examining its worldview in a way that deep inside critical race theory is built on a worldview that is in conflict with a Christian worldview. That's one mistake. Right. On the other hand, I see people just dismissing it and criticizing it right. and not asking two things. Is there anything we can garner from it? One. Mm. And second, why do so many people find it attractive? Yeah. Why is it that people are drawn to this? And a part of critical race theory, and this is where I would take issues with it, is critical race theory is not based on the idea is racism at play and how is it at play? The assumption is racism is always a factor and we have to unearth how race is a factor. Right. Do you see how different that is? So I would approach the situation and say, there could be racism here, but let's not assume that from the outset and critical race theory downplays other factors that are often present really at play. So I view it as one tool, so to speak. And I use that term cautiously because behind it is a worldview contrary to Christianity. Right. But a lot of people believe this. So when we come out defensive and we attack critical Mm. race theory, we build walls instead of bridges. So my three-step approach, if I remember, was like, read critical race theory carefully. In other words, understand it first, read it charitably, don't look for faults in it. And then third, read it critically. We need to approach it in that fashion. Mm. By the way, I'm fact-checking you. Your first one was read it clearly, not carefully. I'm sorry, Sean. I hate to tell you. Oh, gosh. <laughs> no, that's outstanding. I knew it was a C. <laughs> I got to tell you, that is such a great That is such a great idea. That, that The question you asked, why are they drawn to it? If we would stop and ask that question and kind of come alongside that person and try to step inside their shoes a little bit. That's such a great approach rather than just reacting to the, the, what we yes. perceive to be the negative aspects of that. Can I jump in here? Please. Just, here's why this is so important. Take something like gender theory or queer theory. I think that's even more in conflict with a Christian biblical sexuality. Right. But people don't ask, why is someone drawn to it? I have read a lot of queer theory. You know how a lot of these books start? Mm. By people describing growing up and not fitting into these gender stereotypes, they felt mocked, they felt left out, they felt discriminated. And somehow they discover queer theory and it gives them language and power to navigate the world. If we don't understand that heart issue beneath it and we come fighting out on the level of ideas, we miss Mm. a chance to love and care for people and guide them to ultimate biblical truth. Yeah, that man, that is powerful. Um, in the area of 
because a lot of this, you know, you're a professor of apologetics, and which is kind of this idea of articulating and defending our faith and making it reasonable to uh, different people groups and different generations. How has the political divide affected the conversation? Because it seems like everything gets political and everybody draws up on sides and nobody's listening. This is a tough question. I don't speak in a politics. I have not publicly criticized Trump. I have not publicly supported Trump. Now, I will talk about worldview ideas that intersect with politics, right. but not endorse or criticize particular candidates. And it's almost become impossible to just do what I feel God has called me and equipped me to talk about issues of the scripture, talk about issues of unity, talk about issues of pro-life and biblical sexuality, because there's always a political angle on it. So I don't have a perfect answer for that. But what's heartbreaking is it's so hard for people to say, you know what, we can differ on certain political things but we have unity in the body of Christ, that's harder than ever. And I think we're seeing more divide. I actually saw a post this morning from Kevin DeYoung, who's a reform pastor. And he said, you go back just five years ago. And even the reform circles agreed on like biblical sexuality. They agreed on certain theological Mm -hmm. things. He laid out four different grids of approaching critical race theory and said, now within reformed circles. There's not even agreement of how to approach this. So I think we're just seeing more division than ever, which frankly is one of Satan's primary tactics is to conquer and divide, which is why Ephesians and other books are about unity. Yeah, no. And that's, that is so true. It's like, you can't talk about anything. I mean, we've seen it just something as, as basic and simple as whether it's, whether you need to wear a mask, whether you don't wear a mask, it's almost like it divides along party lines. And it's like, everything can be divided into right, left in this country. And it really prevents the whole beginning of conversations. The way people perceive the church, I think is, is, I think it's a a problem, but it maybe also creates an opportunity. What have you found as far as apologetics and the cultural kind of the culture moving away from the church? So I think you're right about opportunities. We had Helen Pluckrose, who describes herself as a new atheist, and Mm. she wrote a book, one of the best books on critical theory called Cynical Theories. Mm. And she came onto our podcast and I asked her, I'm like, why are we seeing atheists and Christians and People who would not have common cause on other issues have common cause here. And she's like, because I believe in liberal, lowercase l, freedom of speech, Mm. human rights, freedom of religion. And there's this L on the left, capital L, that's attacking a lot of these ideas. Mm. So even in like the, the trans movement, you have feminists who just a decade ago were being labeled radical feminists by certain evangelicals. Right. And then we turn around like, oh, wait a minute. You believe there's such a thing as a woman and it's objective and it's true. And we want to fight for women's rights. Yeah. You have like evangelicals and you know feminists coming together on that issue. So it's created some strange bedfellows, so right. to speak, yeah. and common cause and relationship that is one benefit that I think has come out of this. Right. No, I absolutely I absolutely agree. And it also where where you can people are willing just to talk about ideas 
in that setting. You know, again, you got to stay away from any politics, otherwise it's, you know, all bets are off. Right. Sean, thank you so much for being with us. What a, what a great privilege. Uh, anything else, anything else you want to share with folks? You know, I think you got everybody's attention. You got them. Uh, what would you, what would you want to leave them with? Gosh, I, you asked all the right questions. So (laughs) I am all over social media. So the the central place would just be seanmcdowell.org, but I have a YouTube channel that's been growing recently pretty quickly, which is cool. Mm -hmm. I'm on TikTok. Twitter, Instagram, these are just tools that I use in different worlds to try to help parents and even students develop a Christian worldview. So I don't do like stupid cat videos. Sometimes I do fun stuff with my kids, but really I just want to equip people. And so if you're looking for that on social media, that might be helpful. Well, thank you, Sean. You can find him at seanmcdowell.org. You can find him at all those different sites. Written a lot of books. Check his material out. We appreciate you being with us and uh, just pray you have a great day, man. Thanks for having me on, Sean. God bless. Well, that was horrible because we didn't talk about Easter. <laughs> we didn't. Go. Let, let, no, let's just get him back. Yeah. Because we didn't even get into the specifics of like resurrection or any of that stuff. Right. That, that's All one right. of the reasons we want to talk to him. Well, but... then let me start over. That was awesome. <laughs> it was and awesome. He a, and he, I think he enjoyed it too. It was an intelligent conversation. And yeah. You brought it, Sean. So. Well, hey. it was great to talk with him. Thank you for setting that up. He, he really is a neat, neat guy. I am... Uh, I'm just glad we were able to get him. I hope you listeners enjoyed that. Um, mm-hmm. I do encourage you to check out his resources. Uh, I'm really going to be recommending to parents, to teachers, youth ministry leaders, uh, his book, So the Next Generation Will Know. And, of course, his new book for students is called Chasing Love, and it's a great resource. And it's well. obvious the apple doesn't fall far from the tree there. And no kidding. Down. Smart guy, and I think he had the books behind him to prove it. Yeah, the, uh, yeah. We got Zoom to see call. him on a Zoom call, yeah. And I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Sean McDowell. What a great brother. All right, Sean. Uh, happy Easter. Is it too soon? It's not too soon, uh, man. We're getting it, it's yeah. Okay, it's too uh, soon. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, then we'll do a couple more podcasts before then. Uh, but uh, we thank you for listening to the Reaching for Life podcast and radio show. Uh, if you liked it, uh, well, then like it. Yeah. Uh, get uh, get on the Facebook, uh, share it, the Twitter, uh, share it with your friends, and pass along the good news. Also, subscribe if you're not a subscriber already. And uh, Sean, final thought. Final thought is, man, uh, look for ways to love people and then share the gospel out of that relationship and out of a heart to see God's kingdom expanded. God bless you. Have a great day.